Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and our guest is Sarah Schneiderman, an assistant professor of anthropology at Yale University. Professor Schneiderman is a socio-cultural anthropologist working in the Himalayan regions of Nepal, India, and China, especially the Tibetan Autonomous Region. Her research addresses the relationships between political discourse, ritual practice, cultural performance, and cross-border migration in producing contemporary ethnic identities. Since 2009, she has been involved in a project entitled Inequality and Affirmative Action in South Asia, Current Experiences and Future Agendas in India and Nepal. Today we talk with her about that project and her research on inequality and affirmative action. Welcome, Professor Schneiderman. Thank you. Let's begin with an overview of the project. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, well, it came together as a partnership project between several junior scholars. Mm -hmm. uh, we were all based in the UK at the time um, because I completed my postdoc at Cambridge University just before coming to Yale. Um, so several of us based in the UK and then several scholars in India and Nepal. And all of us were interested in the policies of affirmative action, but more importantly, what its results look like on the ground in lived reality. Mm -hmm. Many of us are anthropologists. There are six of us involved in the project. One is a historian, one is a political scientist, and one focuses on education. But all of us wanted to look in a more fine-grained manner at how people on the ground in various communities understood the policies that were being formulated and then reacted to them in terms of their own cultural practice in everyday life. So we got together and put in an application to the British Academy uh, to have a three-year uh, set of research, um, research in initiatives in which we would look at both India and Nepal, comparatively speaking, um, to understand how the history of what are often called reservations in India, that's a system that's been in place since the 1950s, and it's one of the oldest and most robust systems of affirmative action anywhere in the world, what we wanted to understand was the implications of that history for current debates in Nepal, uh, which is currently in a moment of state restructuring. There's mm -hmm. been a 10-year-long conflict, which officially ended in 2006 uh, between the state and Maoist insurgents. And in the wake of that post-conflict settlement, uh, a new constituent assembly was elected. And one of the major agendas of that new governing body in Nepal has been to develop the country's first ever system of affirmative action. Because Nepal is located adjacent to India and has a great deal of cross-border historical mm -hmm. connections and also contemporary flows of people and ideas and so forth, it seemed like a natural thing to do to bring the conversations which have been ongoing in India for a long time about these issues into the uh, discursive environment in Nepal. Of course, some of that is already happening at the policy level, but what we wanted to do was to bring a rigorous scholarly uh, perspective to bear on some of these de policy debates, and particularly an ethnographic perspective. So one, like I said at the beginning, that would look really in detail at how people were experiencing policy and how they were transforming their lives in relation to it, and then how, in, in, in effect, they might also request the state to transform the policies for them. All right, before we go any further, let's define what you are calling affirmative action. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well this is a term which can often be very controversial and it's taken to mean different things in different parts of the world. Um, in India, uh, it's largely been discussed as um, equivalent with positive discrimination. Mm -hmm. So basically any measure which all other things being equal gives special benefits to people of certain recognized groups because they're perceived to have a past of um, discrimination and not equal access to often government resources, jobs, education, and so forth. Um, so affirmative action actually refers to a broad range of possible initiatives, some of which can be positive discrimination, as I just, just described. There's also a concept of positive action, which is more prevalently used in the UK, um, which does not actually include specific benefits, um, but it, it, it engenders, it aims to um, make available information to people from a wider range of different groups. Um, so there are many different forms of, of these uh, affirmative action measures. I know the project um, is wrapping up in 2012. They're having mm -hmm. their final conference in July. Are there any particular goals that you would like to have seen the project reach at that point? Well, our major goal has been to create a body of literature uh, on this material. Mm -hmm. um, that's one, been one goal. Another goal has been to actually bring this scholarly material into play in the policy arena. And so we see some of that happening. We currently have three different publications in process resulting from the work in the project. And I should say what some of that work has comprised has been research projects mostly carried out by graduate students in India and Nepal, funded through this project and supervised by myself and the other um, members of the partnership in the UK, India, and Nepal. And so they've conducted case studies in different parts of both countries looking at these micro-level dynamics. Um, so some of that work will be published in an edited volume uh, in Nepal. Um, some of it will be published in a special issue of an anthropology journal, which myself and my co-editor and project organizer, Alpa Shah, uh, are editing. She's at Goldsmiths College in London. And um, then in the summer conference in Kathmandu, we'll be bringing together scholars from all over the world who have worked on these dynamics, both to talk with each other to see what's unique about the Nepal scenario, which can yield insights for scholarship more broadly defined, but also what kinds of insights those scholars can contribute to the dynamics in Nepal. And that conference will also include meetings between the scholars and Nepali constituent assembly members and other policymakers involved in the top-level discussions there. Have you done any comparative analyses between Nepal, for instance, and perhaps the United States or any other countries? This is something which is of great interest to me and is a direction that my own work might go in. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually teaching a class here at Yale in the spring, which is titled Affirmative Action in South Asia and the U.S. Okay. And so through that class, um, I'll be beginning to look at some of that literature. Of course, the comparative project is really important, and there have been scholars who have looked at particularly the example of India in relation to what it might offer to the U.S., but most of that analysis has come from quantitative perspectives, so from sociology, political science, economics, looking at the numbers. Does affirmative action, action actually increase people's um, socioeconomic standing? Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm more interested in looking at is how it actually affects people's sense of identity and their cultural practices. And so that's a perspective that we've been able to develop in the South Asian context, which I also think it would be really useful to apply here in the U.S. Okay, I know you believe that there should be affirmative action, um, especially in Nepal. Can you um, kind of extrapolate on that a little bit, why you feel that way? 
Again, this is a very controversial issue, and I want to make clear that I'm um, not in favor of affirmative action measures that are applied in a sort of haphazard manner. Mm -hmm. um, rather, I think that careful research is necessary to understand what the underlying social and cultural dynamics are, and that's, of course, what we're trying to do through this project, mm -hmm. um, and then applying that knowledge. Um, Part of the issue in both Nepal and India has to do with histories of classification, mm -hmm. how people are actually classified um, so that they fall into categories that could be beneficiaries of affirmative action. In India, um, some of the categories are called scheduled tribes, uh, or ST, mm -hmm. um, so people who come from uh, ethnic communities. or. A caste, I mean, I know that the caste system is, is still in place in India, so that, I would imagine, is, is part of those tribal groups you're, you're No, so of? there are two separate oh, groups. Okay. Scheduled tribes are one legally recognized okay. um, gr set of groups, and there's many, many groups within that uh, large-scale designation. Okay. And then scheduled castes are the other group, and um, those are communities who historically would have been at the lower rungs of the Hindu caste system, mm -hmm. so otherwise known as untouchables or Dalits. Then there's another set of of groups which the Indian state has more recently recognized called other backwards classes and that is the official legal term. Um, so what happens through all of these processes of state recognition is that people actually have to prove their eligibility for belonging to one of these groups and that leads to all kinds of cultural politics um, that can be very difficult and divisive. Now in Nepal the same sorts of groups exist in the sense that there was a caste system which is officially illegal but still continues in practice practice mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that people do discriminate against others on the basis of caste. And there are also many ethnic minorities who do not fall within that caste system. Um, and because of this stratification, which was also legally recognized by the state um, in legal codes going back even to the 1850s, basically people have not had equal access to education and resources mm -hmm. over time. And in Nepal, it's only been after 1990 that it's actually been legal to talk about ethnic difference. Before 1990, when the country returned to democracy, you couldn't even use an ethnic name or an ethnic language um, in any kind of uh, public do domain. And due to that history of discrimination and marginalization, people feel very strongly that there need to be some sort of uh, corrective measures to that. Just to give you a few statistics, um, for instance, in Nepal, in the civil service, and so this is 2010 data, um, the Brahmin group, which is the top level of the uh, caste system, is about 12% of the population, but they have over 70% of the top level civil service jobs. Mm -hmm. By contrast, the ethnic minorities are about 30% of the population, but they have only around 1% of those civil service jobs. So the inequalities are very vast, mm -hmm. and in order to bring that sort of inequality into some sort of balance within a relatively short time frame during the process of state restructuring that's going on now in Nepal, um, many people feel that it is necessary to have these kinds of measures. And I support that really on the basis of my ethnographic work with people from marginalized communities who express those sorts of desires to me. It seems like it would be a very complicated um, policy to put forth. I mean, so what is the current situation now in Nepal, for instance? Yes, it is very complicated, and of course that's a term that scholars like to use mm -hmm. a lot, and so the question is how we can distill some of that mm -hmm. complication into something that's actually practicable at a policy level. 
Um, in Nepal, there has been a constituent assembly, so basically a governing body which is at once um, meant to govern but also to draft a new constitution. That has been in place since 2008 um, after elections were called for the first time in over 10 years. And they were supposed to draft a constitution within two years, but they missed that deadline. Then it was three years, they missed that deadline, and now they're continuing um, to work on that. And one of the main divisive issues is this question of affirmative action, how to actually set it up in a way that accords people who were discriminated against in the past a fair chance without creating new forms of discrimination mm -hmm. against members of the previously dominant group. So this is a subject of very active debate and it's in tandem with the discussion about state restructuring. So Nepal was a unitary state in the sense that it had no states or federal structure like we have here in the U.S. It was just uh, one homogenous polity and now the idea is to break it down into 14 different provinces, um, each of which might in fact be governed by an ethnic, um, the ethnic group that is dominant in that area. Mm -hmm. But as you can imagine, this is also very controversial. And so the question is, how can equality actually be assured in a way um, that doesn't actually fragment the state and also makes people feel like they're all getting equal access mm -hmm. to the limited resources the right. state has to offer? I mean, it's something that you can probably debate and talk about forever, but it gets to a point where you have to stop and say, okay, right. here's what we're going to do. So that you have not reached that point yet in Nepal. No, I mean, of course, many people have their own ideas mm -hmm. about what should happen, um, but it still has not been actually formulated in, in any kind of legal manner. Those constituent assembly debates are ongoing. And as a point of comparison, in India, the constituent assembly debates had a similar form, but were held between 1948 and 1950. And India's affirmative action system emerges out of those debates. So what happened in India 50 years ago is happening in Nepal now, and that's why uh, the comparison between the two countries and taking lessons learned from India's 50 years, mm -hmm. also about the negative sides of affirmative action and what might Nepal might do to avoid some of the problems that India has encountered. Um, that's a very valuable what are exercise. Some of, what are some of the um challenges that India has encountered? Um, well, one of the one that I look at most carefully in my own ethnographic work is, relates back to this issue of classification that I mentioned earlier. So basically, what are the criteria out there for a group to be recognized as a scheduled tribe? Well, in India, um, the list dates to 1965, and it includes um, evidence of being primitive, and these are the Indian government's terms, not mm -hmm. mine, uh, geographical isolation, backwardsness, their own traditional culture, and some sort of oral tradition. Mm -hmm. So they're very normative terms that basically say people should have this kind of cultural practice if they are to be recognized as tribal. And so what that has compelled is as a whole uh, set of cultural performances by which people try to match that criteria by outperforming each other as ever more tribal. So people who may on a normal day wear a shirt and pants and work in an office in front of a computer, when it comes time to actually uh, put on a performance for members of the state who may be part of the commission which would verify their community as a tribal group, they'll put on what they perceive to be tribal costumes, um, often creating things which 
never previously existed. And so there's a kind of fabrication of culture that goes on, uh, which in itself is not necessarily negative, but it begs the question of what actually are the criteria for recognition and why do people actually have to manipulate their daily reality right. in order to gain benefits, which really should be uh, tagged to economic inequality, not the performance of certain cultural traits. Sure. And so this is a problem that's now widely recognized in India, but the question is how do you uh, transform those legal codes um, at, at this particular moment, whereas Nepal has the opportunity not to reify culture as a criteria, but instead to find ways of evaluating economic inequality and the ways that it's linked to caste and ethnicity mm -hmm. in a much more nuanced manner. And there are um, various groups that are actively trying to come up with those definitional rubrics. And what do you think the future holds? I mean, how far down the line, how many years perhaps do you think it will take before something is instituted in terms of affirmative action, particularly in Nepal? Well, we'll have to see. Um, they now actually have a deadline for the Constitution, hold on, it's September, August, at the end of November, um, but it remains to be seen whether that will actually come to pass or not. Um, the very sticky issue in Nepal, again, is this issue of federal restructuring on the basis of ethnicity. So should there be new provinces or states um, which are delineated along ethnic residence patterns? And as you can imagine, that's a very controversial sure. issue. Um, so will that happen or not? We still don't know. My hope is that they will find a way to institute affirmative action at a central state level so that these powers are not devolved to newly formed states, um, but rather are administered from whatever remains of the central state so that such policies can be formulated in a way that are equitable for people living all across the country, regardless of where they are. Um, actually having new states with new administrative structures to set up responsible for uh, developing affirmative action policy at the same time seems like a great challenge to me. Yes, I agree. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing some of your work. Thank you very much. For more information about Professor Schneiderman and her research, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report, made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale.